Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're Chinja 102.73 Triple R. Or maybe listening via rrr.org.au. Maybe now, maybe later on. Anyway, it doesn't matter because this is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mills. Hi, Cade. Um, I'm refreshed. Yeah. It's very refreshing out there this morning. I saw frost. Along I, the Merry Creek. Yeah, all over those footy grounds that you won't have the dew kickers out there kicking them off, unfortunately, this weekend. No. That's what the kids that play the first game of footy are called, the dew kickers. Ah. Yeah, you end up with these little razor-like cuts on your leg from all the frost when you <laughs> slide on the grass. So you'll notice most of them don't fall over the first for the first game. Yeah. I remember being – I grew up in Doncaster and there was frost everywhere. I don't know if there still is because – Things have changed a bit these days in terms of the warmth of the city in general. But um, that was that was so exciting, waking up and having the grass completely white and covered in frost. Yeah, I grew up in Geelong and Lara was the like the frost hotspot. I used mm. to work as a garbo as I was going through uni and the bins used to break because they would freeze overnight huh. and you'd go to pick them up and the handle would be in your hand and the rest of the bin would be on the side of the road. So if you're in Lara and it's still like that, I hope you're nice and warm. Yeah, warm up, rug up. Get ready for another wonderful day of Triple R tunage and programming. A lot of chat this morning, which is what we do here on Sunday mornings here at Triple R. Thank you very much to Tim for wonderful vital bits as always. Lovely marine bracket that I heard in the background. We were um, we were chatting so much here getting ready for our program. I'm going to go back and listen on demand. Yeah, and we Thank also you, got Tim. we got caught out by the lack of things to do today. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> We, we say, what? It's nine o'clock. No. It's always a little oral cue, isn't it, when we hear things yes. to do today. We get that kind of minute and a half to get ourselves ready and it didn't happen today. Yes. But I'm sure everyone will find something to do today. Yeah. And thank you, Andrew, of course, for Soulful Bits as well. You can catch Tim next Saturday morning at six o'clock for more Vital Bits. Today's program for Radio Marinara, wow, it's a ripper. It's full. We're going to crack into it. Um, Neil Blake is going to be, oh, not in studios. Sorry, Neil, um, because, of course, we are in uh, stage four restrictions again. Hopefully not for too long this time. So even pirates follow a 5K radius Apparently so. <laughs> well behaved, that's good. <laughs> so uh, Neil Blake, as our bag keeper, he's going to be talking up the concept of rapid response community task force to report and remove newly arrived pest species um, like the Northern Pacific Sea Stars. And we've had some anecdotal reports um, through Jackie Younger and other folks, particularly down on the Mornington Peninsula, that they're, um, they're, they're showing up again. So, yeah, this concept of a rapid response community task force. I love it. Yeah, and look, I think it's happening in a way, um, but this would be a really good way just to you know formalize bring everyone it. together, formalise it, and to be able to respond um, to these sort of things quickly and you know basically be on hand almost. Yeah. It's like an SES for marine pests. Love it. Yeah. Love it. So we'll talk to Neil about that. Um, we are going to catch up on what's happening with spider crabs. Are they here? They should be, shouldn't they? So Shannon Hurley from Victoria National Parks Association, she's working closely with the Save Our Spider Crabs campaigners and she's going to bring us this week's report on the spider crabs, whether they're here or not. 
well, it's maybe they they're sticking to their five k radius as well, <laughs> Bron. You know who knows these days. Um, but yeah, there have been some reports in a few locations, but it's quite interesting in that um, people are remaining a bit more hush hush about when and where they're seeing them these days. For, yeah. For reasons which Shannon, I'm sure, will get into. Exactly. Um, we are then going to cross to Sydney to speak with uh, author, she's an award-winning author, scriptwriter, mentor, Catherine Heyman, about her memoir, which is told in a, uh, a book, her autobiography really, I suppose, called Fury. It's a 30-year story of how her experiences working as a deckhand on a fishing trawler in the Timor Sea led to a transformation from a dark history to a new life. I'm reading that from um, the, the words that I prepared for our Facebook uh, social promotion of our show today. It's an incredible book. I read it cover to cover. I was um, uh, absolutely enthralled and it's a very full-on story and um, – and just, just how this experience of being a deckhand out in the open ocean enabled her to kind of go through that transformation. Yeah. Have you been out at sea before, Bron? Like I have. A, you have? Yeah. Yes. It's quite a humbling experience as the shoreline sort of fades away and you're just surrounded by water. So it would be interesting to get her take on that yeah. and the impact it's had. Yep. Yeah, several times, not for many years, but I know that experience and, yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. So, uh, yeah, really, really yeah, looking forward to that um, interview with Catherine. That'll be around 9.30. And then to close the show, we uh, a couple of weeks ago, Cade, we talked about uh, – Came you mentioned it – came from a press release about the Coast Care Victoria Community Grants Program. Yeah, and getting Dr Jackie Pocklington, or as you call her, Poco. Poco. I don't think <laughs> I've been able to call her that yet. I've known her for a while, but I've never gone down the Poco path. But, uh, yeah, to talk about, you know, basically the groups that can be energised and invigorated by this, it's, you know, basically to enable people to look after their coasts and protect their coasts. And, you know, a lot of people are sitting around with ideas. Now's the time to put them down on paper and, you know, get out there and do it. That's it. She now has the formal role of Coast Care Victoria Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot her job title. Yeah. Yeah. No, that the reason I mentioned it, I'm just wondering whether I'm still allowed to call it Poco. <laughs> Dr. Poco? <laughs> She works for we'll the department now. Oh. <laughs> we might have to be more formal, Kate. I don't know how it works. Uh, it's Sunday morning on Radio Marinara. We don't need to be formal. Yeah, let's make it. We, we haven't we haven't done it before. Let's, write let's, our own let's rules. not start. Yeah. Shall we have a little look at today's weather? We should. At the moment, it is two point one degrees, and it feels like minus one point seven. So I'm sure Cliff is going. Geez, it's warm in Victoria at the moment. <laughs> you big sooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and later on today, I think we're going to get up to a top of about 17. And then the rest of the, west, the rest of the week is actually looking quite nice as far as, you know, we're heading towards winter. Some mild temperatures around 16, 17 degrees for the rest, of the, the rest of the week with a few possible showers and some, you know, cold overnight lows. But we're heading into that time of the year. But these crisp mornings and clear days are absolutely sensational. So while you're out doing your exercise today, make the most of it. Get some sunshine, recharge. And what is the weather as the mention of Cliff, what's it like down south? Speaking of crisp mornings yes. and afternoons and evenings and crisp is probably Cliff's equivalent of balmy and tropical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he says, uh, uh, what's he saying? Have a good blizz. I think he means blizzard. Over Yes, over 60 knots uh, for 24 hours Gusting over 100 knots at times makes it interesting when travelling between buildings. I'm guessing it probably <laughs> does, Cliff. And um, having a look at the weather for today, uh, Casey Station weather. 
I'm just getting this up on my phone. Um, 15 knots at the moment, southwesterly gusting to uh, 17 knots. Air temperature minus 6.1 with a wind chill factor of minus 14.1. Humidity of 94%. And uh, at Davis, I think, I can't quite see. Oh, yeah, okay, this was, this was the big one when it was blowing, <laughs> as Brett Illingworth used to say, blowing its ring out. Um, 80 <laughs> knot east to southeasterly gusting, 202 knots, and, um, yeah, wind chill factor of minus 25.4. Cliff sent some stunning photos, which we will put on our Facebook page. I did get around to putting that Aurora photo up for this week, which he sent us last week. I, he's just sent me another message. Warming up here since I sent weather update, minus 4.7 degrees at oh, the moment. It's almost on par you with what we're your, feeling. Put your bathers on and go out and have a swim. Yeah. <laughs> get, get the boardies on and get amongst it. I think we've got time for maybe one quick bit of news. Yeah, so one quick bit of news. Uh, so on the ABC recently. So Dr. Paul Carnell from the Blue Carbon Lab is someone we've had on the show a few times talking about urchins, particularly in Port Phillip Bay. Um with the sort of areas around Port Phillip Bay, barrens appearing due to you know, an overabundance of urchins in various areas. And he was on promoting eating them as a way to control them. So there's a bag limit of 40 urchins um, in, in and around the bay that you can go out and collect. And they have the beautiful urchin row. Um, I say beautiful, I probably should have used air quotes because it is not to everyone's taste. Uh, he also presented it with a recipe, and I think you'll find now that this has been promoted, you'll find everyone gets creative. Once you find a source of, of food that is sitting there, it's abundant, and you're actually helping improve the environment by taking these things out due to the overabundance. Um, people will come up with these ways of eating it, and I'm sure there'll be a recipe for everyone. So I think having mentioned it now, we should get Paul on to talk a bit further about this and the work that's being done to restore some of these barren areas, particularly in the marine reserves. They're doing some really good work there where they've cleared them out and they've now got a couple of years worth of data where they're Mm. seeing a lot of the algae grow back. When Paul comes on, I'll tell the story about when I went out as a research assistant once um, to the Mercury Islands on the New Zealand east coast and um, took out a uh, um, local Maori guy because was he eating them underwater? He that was that was the deal that he yeah. would help um, locate the species of interest to the lead researcher because I was out there just diving and helping, and um, yeah, the deal was that he would pull up some uh, kina, which is what they're called um, in New Zealand, Maori word for urchin is kina, and just sliced him in half, grabbed the road down the gob, bang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, working in Sydney, I've seen guys do it actually underwater. It's almost just like a little salty treat oh. to keep them going while they're diving. Yeah. Yeah. I was seasick to begin with. I can't <laughs> tell you what it did to me. Without further ado, time to welcome back, this time virtually through the magic of uh, the interwebs. I don't know. Is that what we call it? I don't know. Neil Blake, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> oh, you're a bit quiet there, Neil. I'm not, uh, not quite sure why. Can you maybe turn the volume up at your end? How's how's the mic at your end? Oop. Oh, the joys. <laughs> <laughs> We're back in that space again. Yeah. Maybe just uh, maybe kickstart, Neil, and um, we'll see if we can work things out at our end. Okay. All right. How are you going? You can hear me. You can. We just you're just pretty quiet. So if there's any way of kind of um... okay, well I'll try to project a little more then, brother. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Um, yeah, look, look, I mentioned at the start of the show we we're going to talk up the idea of rapid response community task force. What's that? We were talking about it before, Neil, and we reckon that sounds like a great idea. What's what's um, what's that all about? 
Well, the, the Northern Pacific sea stars are the particular issue. Uh, and the fact that they get around in big big bobs, lots of hoonish behaviour, uh, and thousands of them, and often they may actually come quite close to shore. So they're readily accessible by, by anyone who wants to collect them and remove them from the water. So uh, the, the idea is that, and that happens from time to time, uh, at any point in the year, really, over the last few years, there's been several occasions when uh, they've occurred uh, in big numbers close to shore, uh, but quite widespread. So some of them may be in Port Melbourne or some might be down as far as Rye in the bay. So uh, what, what ideally would be necessary would be to have trained uh, local coordinators of uh, sea star collections that could actually respond when they when those aggregations occur because you've only really got a window of maybe one to two days to, to act and to take advantage of the opportunity so uh, having uh, one little team based somewhere in the north of the bay for example uh, who might get caught in a traffic jam on the way down to Rye <laughs> in the holiday season is not going to work. So we really need uh, a coordinated uh, chapters around the bay of people who can uh, call in volunteers from the local area when necessary. Now, Neil, whenever you um, put together ideas like this, there's usually some puns and some fancy titles going on. What what are the names of these coordinators? What's the, the sexy name or the working name of this group that you've got going on? Well, uh, I'm not sure where you're going there, Kate. But oh no, I'm just <laughs> suggesting that you're a very creative person, Neil. And when it comes to things like this, you'd like to put, I don't know, have a bit of fun with the wording and you know create interesting names so that people go, yes, I want to be part of this group. Yeah, well, uh, I haven't really got that far yet, Kate. To be honest, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think just floating the idea is that, 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 that I'm sure those those are. Imaginations will occur in due course. That's but, uh, the, so the point at this stage is this has been a historic lack of interest because what we're, we're going to require here is collaboration between government agencies, including local governments and, and community, uh, to, to actually address this and achieve the, the full potential of this rapid response. Uh, and as I say, there has been a historic focus from government just on uh, detecting and eliminating newly introduced pests and those that are already established in the bay are just, oh, they've, they've thrown our hands in the air and said, oh, well, we'll just try and stop them from uh, spreading to other waters and that's been the extent of the effort that's gone into uh, uh, trying to control them. It's interesting, Neil, and it's really clear that the, the goodwill is there and it's always been there and having these sort of community-driven uh, activities. So we're seeing it with beach patrol, beach cleanups as well, um, then taking that uh, underwater to clean up rubbish sort of around piers and things like that. There was one last weekend at, at Frankston organised by Sea Shepherd. This stuff's actually already happening. And so I think from what I'm hearing you say, what you're proposing is to really harness that activity and that goodwill and f and formalise it in a way that it can be, um, as you said, it's a collaborative exercise between community groups and government. So basically everybody wins because, you know, for, the, for government to be able to invest resources into doing what these community groups is doing already would cost so much money. The will is there. So this is really just about formalising the arrangement. Is that right? 
That's exactly right. The the point about it is the government couldn't afford to, to achieve the, the impacts that the community momentum can do. And uh, so it's a matter of uh, taking advantage, for want of a better word, I suppose, of that, of that community interest and passion for the protecting the bay and enabling that, helping to equip uh, that, that those community uh, uh, people who want to, who want to make a difference. So what would be the next step with this, Neil? Uh, well, um, the Echo Centre's been putting together a, uh, a position statement on, on this so that we'd uh, like to float uh, and run that by, not attacking anyone from government or whatever, but just sort of raise the point that uh, what have we got to lose? You know, <laughs> the point about it is that there's, there are quite a lot of people who have got... Uh, a real passion for caring for the bay, and at that moment, uh, those passions are not being supported uh, from a number of other sources. And if they were, uh, so it's a matter of just identifying how those that can be done, uh, and just uh, then allow uh, government decision makers to think about well, what it's actually not going to cost us too much, really, is it? You know, so. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just uh, having the conversation, I suppose, mm. with, with the, the right people. Have you floated this idea with anyone yet? Uh, we've talked about it amongst uh, some of the people who have been involved in, you know, the, the, the rapid responses at, that have occurred so far. Uh, so it's something that's a, it's a conversation has been uh, going on for a while. Um, but... Uh, at this stage, not I haven't taken it any further than that. Mm. It's interesting. I've seen on social media that there are um, gatherings that tend to happen uh, on land, so in national parks, to eradicate weed species. Um, so thistles is one that I've seen sort of happen from time to time. Um, I don't know. I'm not a botanist, so I haven't really sort of taken too much notice of, of the actual species of plants that have been removed. But it seems to be something that's already happening in some version um, in national parks on land. So, you know, it, it just maybe this is a mind over matter thing and actually getting it going. The other thing is there's been so much um, good effort uh, put into the concept of citizen science, and this is really just extending that, isn't it? So it's it's like a um, off-air Cade mentioned it's like a, an SES program but underwater or, or, yeah, or exactly. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was a good one, Cade. Yeah. Uh, 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 we can definitely work with that. Yeah, and um, I, I think like hearing the plan and hearing what you're sort of planning on formalising, it's it's not going to be just limited to Northern Pacific CSAR, for example. The idea is that you have a group of people that are willing and ready to be trained and to respond. So it could actually be things that we can't foresee at the moment. And as Neil was saying, you know, when it comes to marine pests, the attitude has tended to feel as though it's like, well, they're here, there's nothing we can do. Whereas, like, you can, and there's been a lot of examples around the world where, yes, you're never going to eradicate, but helping, helping areas to become more resilient to these pest incursions are actually beneficial to them. But also there's things that, you know, we've got almost 100 introduced species in the bay at the moment, if not more. There's going to be more. Like, mm. There's no doubt there's going to be more. So having this group that's actually ready to respond to something that's new may actually allow for, I think, the second time in the history of the world, if, if it happens, to eradicate a marine species. It's mm. only ever been done once, and that was in a lock area in Darwin where they're able to basically poison everything and kill it. So you know, this actually does have great potential. And I guess that's what you see, Neil, is that idea is that it's not just about marine pests. It can be about anything. It's the rapid response is the really crucial part here. 
Yeah, I think, uh, too, Kate, you touched on other newly arrived species, and, and th this rapid response group could be also uh, discussing, you know, we're keeping an eye on urchins, for example, or, or other overabundant uh, species that are causing problems for the, the bay ecosystem. Uh, the Asian shore crabs are an, a recent example, you know, so uh, whenever any newly arrived species occur, that the, the group could be attending to those as well. But meanwhile, we should be still trying to do something about controlling northern Pacific sea stars or at least reducing their impacts by trying to get them out of the water. Well, and also getting them out of the water before they have a chance to breed again, and, and that's that's the other key factor in this. Neil, we'll have to move on. I um, really want to pick this up and continue with this one because I think it's a you know it, it's such a great idea. It's about harnessing something that's already there. There's obviously other benefits about having groups like this being able to, um, to educate, you know, rather than having people think they're pulling um, Northern Pacific sea stars out of the water and they're actually pulling out native 11 arm sea stars, which we know happens as well. So, so, so much potential and so much goodness to come of this. So thanks, Neil. And um, we'll catch you in a couple of weeks and hopefully we'll get you back in studio next time. Good on you. Have a good day. <laughs> thanks, Neil. See you, Neil. Yeah. Neil Blake, our baykeeper, you can uh, you can make contact with Neil at any time via the Port Phillip Eco Centre. We've put those details on our Facebook page before. We'll do that again. Uh, Thank you so much for everything you do, Neil Blake. It's time to catch up on the latest news relating to our spider crabs. Are they here? Are they not? To tell us all about it. From the Victorian National Parks Association supporting Save Our Spider Crabs campaign, Shannon Hurley. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning, team. How are you going? Yeah, good, Shannon. Should this segment be called Who, Where's Our Crabs? Who's Got Crabs? Um, <laughs> Crab Watch. Crab Watch. <laughs> What's going on? We've been waiting to... What's going on with our crabs? What's, where <laughs> I think you need to go and workshop this. Oh, look, there are, there are many puns I'm sure we could use, but yeah. uh, maybe better keep it clean for this segment. Um, but, um, look, I think we're going to have to continue just to be in suspense a bit here and, and wait and see because so far... Um, I know definitely people have been um, eager and um, anticipating the crabs to arrive, but still we have not had any reports of them arriving in the shallows of Mornington Peninsula as yet. So they have been seen in other locations. I think I saw Port Welsh Pool. There were some photos of them there, and there's been sort of talk of a few sort of smaller aggregations over the other side of the bay. Is that correct? Yeah, so I've, yeah, definitely, we've definitely been hearing that there has been, yeah, some in Port Welsh Pool. Um, even, um, I'm pretty sure even as far as um, the lakes as well, potentially, but um, yeah, definitely, um, definitely not um, on the eastern side of the bay as yet. This is something that's obviously causing concern for uh, various people for various reasons as well, particularly after what happened last year. And Normal, we were speaking last week with Jackie Younger um, and commenting that by now, usually you get a little sneak preview of them coming through, but there just seems to have been nothing. Any kind of thoughts on that or we all just kind of have to be patient and wait? Yeah, look, I think we all just have to be patient and wait. Um, I think there's there's so many, I mean, given this aggregation has been happening for so many years and we see there just isn't really a pattern. Like just when you think, oh, look, they arrive, you know, this particular month this year, it can totally just change um the, like to the next year as well so i you know i think that um we just yeah really have to be patient and like who knows what they're actually doing and you know obviously as the seasons change our climate changes we just never know what's going to happen 
Now, um, we talked to Jackie last week about colouring competition. <laughs> We're promoting this one because it's it's a really lovely outreach um, to kids. In And, you know, you don't have to be a kid to do the colouring competition. <laughs> I'm guessing the vast majority of your entries probably are from kids. Um, does that wrap up pretty soon? Tomorrow, actually. Tomorrow's the last day. So it is while uh, we are in lockdown, it is definitely a reminder to put your crab on, get your colouring pencils out, kids, adults, um, or everyone is welcome. Um, and, um, yeah, I think uh, today's going to be a great day to do that. What, what uh, else could you do on your Sunday rather than get out your pencils and your colouring, colouring crabs? I think I might have to do one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the last thing I wanted to ask you about last week, we were promoting um, an event that was happening. It was a gathering on the 7th of June. Now, is that still planned to go ahead? Yeah, so it, um, we're just going to wait and see what happens with the lockdown restrictions post Thursday. So um, we're just, it's, we're basically just asking everyone just to sit tight and hang on. Um, you know, we're thinking about maybe if restrictions are still in play, maybe we do an online or maybe we actually just wait and do it in person. But um, definitely on the Spider Crab Alliance Facebook page is the place to stay up to date about what's happening with that, which was scheduled for your next Sunday, the 7th at 2pm. Great. Thanks so much, yep. Shannon. We'll keep moving, but um, thanks for joining us today. And we'll be catching up with someone next week. Um, when Someone? Is there just sort of a rotating cast coming through? Pretty much. <laughs> crabs are infectious. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice, Kate. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Shannon. We'll um, we'll catch up with one of your wonderful group next week and keep keep tabs on what's happening with the spider crabs. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, See you Shannon. Too. Bye. Yeah. Shannon Hurley there from Victorian National Parks Association. Association. <laughs> it's hard to say that when you're in a rush. Um, we'll keep tabs on the spider crabs. Oh, I like a prawn. We'll, we, we'll yeah. do that. Let's go with that. <laughs> tabs on the crabs. Tabs on the crabs. <laughs> Now, the transformative power of the ocean on we human beings is something we're very familiar with here at Radio Marinara over the last 25 years. We've seen and covered so many stories of connection, healing, growth and transformation via the sea. Catherine Heyman knows this. She's lived and experienced it to firsthand and to its fullest. After growing up in a world of poverty and abuse, a significant event triggered the decision to finally escape, leading Catherine to hitchhike to Darwin and from there join a crew on a fishing trawler in the Timor Sea a move which ultimately kick-started a metamorphosis into claiming a new life. Her story is told in the newly released memoir, Fury. To tell us all about it, we welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marinara, multiple award-winning author, Catherine Heyman. Good morning, Catherine. Welcome to Triple R. Hi. Good to be here. Oh, thanks for joining us on the Sunday morning. I'm going to start by letting our listeners in on something. We actually had you originally scheduled to be on our program last week, but I'd only read half of Fury. Your story was so powerful, I felt there's no way I could do it or you justice by cobbling together an interview without finishing it. Um, it's a really powerful read that left me as a reader changed. Have you found that it's had that effect on other readers? I really have. Yeah, look, there's. it's been so interesting talking to people uh, around the country about fury and hearing other people's stories because that's of course what's happening as i speak i get women and actually men too coming and sharing their stories with me um so this what that says to me is that this um this backstory of trauma <laughs> you know that is so common for for women I want that not to be true, but it, it really is. Um, and as I said, you know, it's not just women. It's, there's some truth in that 
for men too. And I realise as I'm doing all that talking that I'm what I'm kind of writing about, I hadn't quite twigged to this, is a kind of PTSD and a way through that, a way out of that, a way into a new story. Now, the title of the story is Significant Fury because it, it relates to your experience, but it's actually an indication. It, it, it's you, isn't it? It is me, yeah. Um, when, I was, when I was a kid, I, uh, I, was, I had several nicknames and um, uh, some of them really less than flattering um, and some of them um, really offensive. Um, uh, and one of them was Little Fury. When I was quite little, I developed a habit of uh, when I was waiting for the bus for, with the other bigger kids, if um, if the bigger kids came too close to me or asked me things that I wasn't happy with, I would bite them. And uh, my father witnessed that one day and picked me up in front of the other kids and called me a little fury, which was clearly meant to be shaming. But I took it as, yeah, that's right. I am. Don't come too close. So I it became a kind of praise song for me. And yeah, the, the other kids called me that. And Little Cannibal, those two, for a while. So Fury is me, but it's also um, it's also a, what I think of as a resource. You know, it's it's I, I think of it as being quite different from rage or even straight-up anger. In the way I think of it in the writing of the book, it's a tool. It's kind of clear and sharp and kind of cool. You know, fury, rage, I think of as being white hot <laughs> um, or red hot maybe. Um, but but fury is sharper. So, yeah, fury refers to me, but it also refers to the resource that women can use and harness. And for you, that this is what took you to Darwin, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the end of your story in Fury um, at the time that the that Fury finishes, at the point it finishes. It's only possible because of its beginning. Um, I'm just wondering if we can ask you to speak a little bit about why at the age of 20 you found yourself hitchhiking alone from Sydney to Darwin to, to really look for something different in life and harness that Fury and and really change things for yourself yeah I um I'd I'd been on the receiving end of uh, you know as a young woman like many young women I'd been on the receiving end of a lot of unwelcome um sexual attention and that really culminated with a traumatic um uh trial for sexual assault which was brutalizing as those trials often are and at the end of that trial, all I knew, I don't even know if I knew it. I, I kind of think of it as being um, sort of animal instinct. I had to be somewhere else. I had to go as far away from the world I was in, the situation I was in, the story I was in. I had to become someone else. And to do that, I, I had to be somewhere else. All of that was just blind instinct. Um, and so I ran, I bolted, uh, and it was a kind of how far can I go? I just, <laughs> I need to go further. No, still further. No, still further. Um, now, of course, I understand that, in fact, after trauma or distress, a circuit breaker 
is a really sound way of finding your way into recovery. But I had none of that knowledge. It was just my body going, get the hell out of here. Um, and I, when I got to the end of the country, that still wasn't far enough. And to clarify, becoming a deckhand wasn't something you'd ever dreamed of doing growing up, was it? Although you had spent some time sailing, but but spending time on board a trawler in the middle of the Timor Sea wasn't really a specific life goal for you. <laughs> Do you know, is it any young girl's life goal to become a decky on a trawler in the Timor Sea? Um, no, I mean, I wasn't aware that, that it was even a thing, but... But I will say that I was always aware that the sea was a place of sort of salve for me. Mm. I was going to say salvation, and I don't think it was quite that clear, but I always, um, my instinct was always if I was hurt or sad or wounded or frightened to go to the, go to the water. So yes, I did. I sailed, you know, little little dinghies, sabots, um, and and BJ's when I was when I was little. Um, so I wasn't. The sea wasn't alien to me. It never was. But the goal of being a deckhand on a on a battered, stinking trawler. Not so much. I was going to ask you about the ocean thief for us and to just if you could describe it for us because it wasn't a luxury yacht, was it? We're not talking about a really amazing vessel to take you out there on a luxury luxury cruise. It was not a luxury yacht. I had tried, I will say, to get a job on a luxury yacht. I tried to get a job as a cook on a really, really beautiful, beautiful yacht, the kind of yacht that I had no idea existed. And once I stepped onto it, it was like, you know, the scales fell from my eyes. This is how people live. You are kidding me. <laughs> but unfortunately, I um, I couldn't cook. And, um, and during the interview, when she asked uh, what I would cook, it became apparent that I had no idea of what what people who who um, who might eat good food. <laughs> no idea of what one would cook. So that failed. The Ocean Thief was in stark contrast, um, and I actually went out on it not in not too recently, just a couple of years ago. It's been remodelled since. When I went out on it, it was. I mean, these trawlers are. They're not huge, but they're not as small. They're not day trawlers. You go out for a season, so, you know, for, for months at a time. There are, um, you know, usually cabins enough for six people generally and two decks. So as you kind of come on to the, um, to the Ocean Thief, there's a kind of a large uh, stern deck and the centre of that, there's a really big, and this is common for these trawlers, a really big tray, sort of big aluminium tray, which takes up a lot of the deck. And the deck is pretty big. Um, and that's where you're kind of sorting the catch. And then on either side of the of the trawler, you have big outrigger booms, um, quite wide and quite high. And from those booms, that's where you trail your nets when you're trawling. And that's kind of held by a very high... Um, A-frame uh, structure, and then there's a, a an upper deck, which is where you have the wheelhouse and um, and the you know it, the the 
the galley and the cabins are were when I was on it. It's not that it's been it hasn't been refurbished to to be made all glamorous. It's still pretty shabby, but it was even more so when I was was on it. Um, you know, dark, um, gloomy. You know, it's not glamorous. It's not glamorous at all. <laughs> and no windows. You know, there's no there's no portholes. You're not sort of in your cabin going. Oh, lovely! I can look out and see the sunset. You're in a dark little uh, nudge, I call it, a little nudge of a cabin. I was interested that you didn't seem to get seasick on board the Ocean Thief, and was that a surprise to you, or was there seasickness there? Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I did when I first went out, but I honestly don't remember being seasick, and so I didn't write it. And I have no record in my journals of being seasick. So if I was, it didn't make it into the book. I will say, though, that, you know, also I was I was younger. I was pretty, you know, uh, pretty strong, I think, stronger than I thought I was. Um, but I went back out on The Ocean Thief when I was writing the book. I, I, by fortuitous circumstances, found the actual boat and went out on it to research, to remind myself of, you know, what it really was like to, you know, um, to be woken up every few hours and to see the sunrise and to see the sunset and to be in that environment. And I was so seasick. I was so, and I, I went out when I said to the crew, oh no, I'm, you know, I'm an old hand. I, you don't need to worry about me. I'm really fine. And I'm a great worker. And I got on that boat. And as soon as we, um, came out into the into the gulf I was just I'm just gonna go to my cabin I feel really really (laughs) sick and worse than that when they you know we kind of pulled up one catch and then um you know ate dinner and then I said okay well I'm gonna go to to sleep now and um and the skipper said okay well we'll see you about you know 1am 12am and I was like yeah um I'm not going to be doing the nighttime catches. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna watch you guys in the daylight hours. And I just turned into this really kind of revolting journalist type character, you know, just you know, is there breakfast? Where's the buffet? Not um I think they, they felt that I'd really sold myself incorrectly. So I definitely got seasick that time. And I think I was, uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's been a long time between um, between trips. <laughs> For listeners who just tuned in, we're speaking with Catherine Heyman about her story, Fury. And I was wondering, Catherine, there's a moment in the story where you're on watch duty in the wheelhouse in the middle of the night and reflecting on simplicity of life at sea. And I hope you'll indulge me a quote here um, where you say, um, oops, she says, opening the book at the right time. Um, the mistakes I made when talking, the awkwardness of being me, saying the wrong words, making the wrong sounds, no one cared on the ocean thief. Only one thing mattered. Were you awake and ready for the catch? Nothing else counted. It was like being untied. Beyond the wide booms of the ocean thief, there was perfect liminal space without boundaries, without restriction. There was the dark curve of the horizon, the kiss of it against the sky. Within that endless space, I was contained by 50 feet of steel. I'm just wondering the simplicity of that routine that you had on the ocean thief. Do you think that allowed that transformation to happen or was it at least part of it? Oh, it was definitely part of it. I think, as I said, that idea of the circuit breaker, um, that I could no longer be in 
in the kind of um, uh, high alert state that I had been in, I realised for much of my life before then, um, which which is why I started recently to think, oh, okay, well, actually what we're writing about is kind of PTSD, is that I think I had for uh, for many years been in a sort of um, the the kind of yeah f- fight or flight mode, and being on the ocean thief was not in that. It was just you do the job in front of you. You're exhausted, so that becomes its own sort of release. Um, and it did two things. It meant that the sort of memories and um, stories and kind of re-engagement with episodes from my life could come swimming up. And again, that's that's what happens in when you when you stop the kind of flight mode. Um, it allowed that to happen in a way that felt oddly safe, and and it just it did bring a real, as you say, a simplicity and sharp clarity. So all there was to do was to trust my own body, to build my own muscle, my own strength, and to kind of sift through the mud and trauma of my own story and make a better sense of it and make a better future story for myself. It was an immense gift. Catherine, it's been wonderful speaking with you. I could talk to you for at least another half an hour, but we need to move on because we have one uh, one last guest to speak with today. I just want to finish by saying I read an interview last night with you about Fury where you say the book I love the most is the one I've just finished and I can certainly say this about Fury. Just to give some details, it's uh, called Fury, a memoir of courage and determination of fighting back and finding joy by Catherine Heyman, who we've been speaking with, published by Alan and Unwin, available at all good bookstores in Melbourne, including Readings and the Avenue. I've seen it there. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure and uh, I can only encourage all our listeners to uh, to read Fury. Thanks so much, Bron. And uh, it is 9.54. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. And I uh, just need to mention, if you need uh, help with any of the issues raised in this interview, make sure you call 1-800-RESPECT. Uh, or for 24-7 support, you can also call the Sexual Assault Counselling Australia on 1-800-211-028. And without further ado, we're now going to go to Jackie Pocklington, who is the coordinator of Coast Care Victoria, to talk about this new round of community coast care grants on offer. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Bron. Thanks for having me today. We've got Kate here with us as well, Jackie. Thanks so much for hey, joining Kate. us. Hey, Jackie. We've talked, we've talked before about Coast Care Victoria and we'll get you on another time to talk about that more broadly um, because we are a bit pushed for time. Let's, let, let's And we'll talk about the, um, the Coast Care strategy as well, which has also been recently announced, but we'll save that for next time as well. Let's get straight into the grants program. $650,000 up for grabs. What, what yeah, are these? Just, just under. Right, just we better, better qualify that. Yeah. What's that all about? That's a that's a decent amount of money for community grants. We have a lot of money this year, so it's because um, we've had money from the sustainability fund, but we've also had money from the Victorian government's um, Great Out- Outdoors initiative. So I- we've got super super large round of funding this year compared to other years. So yeah, we're really keen to get as many people, you know, community groups and all the people out there applying for 
so we can give them this money to get out there and do do wonderful work on our marine and coast environment. What sort of things are you hoping they get up to, I guess? What sort of things are you hoping these groups do? I'm guessing there's sort of some direction that you're providing them as far as um, projects and examples of things you would like to see. Well, mostly, actually, we are very driven by what the community want to do, but it is um, our criteria works under the climate change um, initiatives on the coast. So in our... um, guidelines there's lots of information about you know the types of projects that would be funded and what kind of um you know works would um would be eligible so um you can everyone can check out all that sort of stuff on our website but we've also got um three main streams this year so we've got a stewardship and education stream one that's about strengthening volunteer groups so whether that's helping with you know making more legacy for the volunteer group or to make them um you know, help help them do their work. And we've also got a new stream called Supporting Traditional Owners Self-Determination. So that's actually about um, getting traditional owners, um, you know, funding to be able to do, do works on country and sea country. So that's really exciting this year to have that one available. Now, there's two tiers of funding, Jackie. Um, can you talk yes. us through those two tiers of funding that people can apply for? Sure. You've got little little funding, so just up to 5,000. So a lot of the, a lot of the, our volunteer groups that do work all throughout the year that might be just the right amount that they need something little to keep them keep them going get some plant guards and those sorts of things and we've got larger grants from between 5,000 to 30,000 so that might suit projects that are a bit bigger and might have multiple components to them. And is the amount of paperwork you have to do sort of relevant to the grant (laughs) itself so if you're after the little one you don't have to do much paperwork and... Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't think of that. It's a curly, curly question there. It's um, there's there's the same sort of contract, so you sort of just have to put down what you did. But I mean, there'd be less to um, it'd be a more straightforward process if you've got a little grant and you're just going, I'm going to do this one thing, and I'm going to report on this one thing. Uh, yeah, and I guess the point I wanted to make is that coast care grants are actually quite easy to apply for. There's not too many hoops oh, to jump good. through, and <laughs> all the coast care staff are open to chat about your project to help sort of steer you in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and we ran some grant um, grant training workshops for a lot of the, a lot of um, people in the last month, actually. So a lot of people that were keen on applying had already um, gone to those workshops. And yeah, you can contact the coordinate the um, all the different facilitators, and they will talk you through anything that you need to do. So you don't have to just you definitely actually you have to do it. You have to talk to your facilitator. Don't just randomly cold put an application in. We'd much prefer to help you be successful and help you get it get all the um, paperwork correct. Jackie, we're going to have to wrap up, but we'll get you on in a couple of weeks' time. When do the applications yep. close? 23rd of June. Great. So we've got a few weeks. Yeah, so let's get, you, let's get you on in a couple more weeks. We can talk about this more broadly. I also want to talk about the 24 groups that um, got grants for program, projects last year so it can give our sure. listeners a bit of an idea about um, the sort of standard and things that you do and we'll help them with their application. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.